Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. What is the relationship between print culture, religious identity and formations of social consciousness in the modern period? In her brilliant new book, Print and the Urdu Public, Muslims, Newspapers and Urban Life, Megan Robb explores this question through a vigorous and exciting micro-history of a major 20th century Urdu newspaper, Medina, that was at the centre of critical, political, theological and sociological currents in Muslim South Asia. The distinguishing feature of this book lies in its focus on the place and space of the Kasbah, or small towns, as fascinating and often overlooked theatres of individual and communal identity, formation and contestation. What competing notions of Islam, politics and time emerge in a marketplace of ideas animated and engined by the technology and materiality of print culture, especially the newspaper? Rob examines this question through a probing analysis that brings together vivid portraits of social and intellectual life in early 20th century North India with productive theoretical interventions on conceptualizing the interaction of print, religion and politics in colonial modernity. Here now is my conversation with Professor Megan Robb. Uh, hello, Megan. Uh, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on New Books and Islamic Studies. Um, uh, really enjoyed reading your book. And it really is a fascinating uh, kind of a book, uh, in addition to being an excellent book, um, in the way it brings together the disciplines of history and religious studies and how it takes the this case study of uh, of a particular newspaper and, and asks and answers admirably and really convincingly these really massive questions of identity, language, politics. It's really an interesting case study of uh, of a fascinating social and intellectual history. Um, so, so congratulations on this terrific achievement. We have a tradition on the New Books Network, Megan, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners uh, 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 some fragments of your journey, how you became a scholar interested in South Asia, Muslims, Islam. Uh, so how you became a scholar, if you could just share that with our listeners a bit. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Shirley, for inviting me to speak with you on this podcast. I'm a big fan and I'm looking forward to talking about my book today. Uh, I was thinking about how to account for my career as a scholar before our conversation. And I I think it comes down to a fascination with languages um, primarily. I I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, in a city that was uh, 
a place that had a very small town feel. I suppose in a way, a kind of American Qasbah, if you will. I was surrounded by many educated, intellectually engaged, globally minded people and family members. But I also, in my case, I had exposure to other environments that were very inward looking um, and even resistant to looking into the outside world. And so perhaps in that way, very different from the Qasbah context. And now looking back, I can see that in some ways, um, this was a very sheltered upbringing where I did not know initially a lot about the world outside of Tennessee or even understand that Southern Christian values were very historically specific rather than they were universal. And But then at the same time, I can see that from a young age, I was really drawn to people around me who were invitations and links outside of those uh, immediate surroundings. I was able to travel to South Africa on an exchange program as a high school student. And um, there was this moment, I remember a few minutes after I walked off the, the plane and through customs, where I was surrounded by people who were my age, who were switching really easily between several languages, English, Afrikaans, Venda, Sutu, Hindi as well. And it was the first time I'd been exposed to a multilingual environment with that kind of vibrancy. And I remember feeling intensely jealous. And it's not a nice thing about myself to admit, but I felt this, I was 15 or 16, and I felt this sense of intense envy it being part of a beauty of an environment where the lexicon wasn't limited by a single language, but had a fluidity and a range that was uh, certainly completely out of my reach. And I was um, in preparation for talking to you today. I was listening to uh, some of the previous episodes of this podcast. And I remember in uh, Charles Hershkin's interview on his book, The Feeling of History, he had talked about how the study of the language was really what brought his interest in um, certain cultural contexts alive for him. And I think that the study of Hindi, Urdu, and Persian <clears throat> were also what brought my interest in Islam alive for me kind of quite gradually and organically over the years. Um, my grandmother's second husband was from Pakistan, and she'd lived in Bahrain for several years. She had traveled quite widely in South Asia with her husband, and um, she was intensely curious about the world. She had been born in a she had been born on a farm in Illinois and hadn't traveled much before middle age and then moved outside of the U.S. and traveled very widely. And she wished for her grandchildren to have very early exposure to environments outside of the United States, which many people in the U.S. Don't, do not get as children. And so she offered to take me to anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And I chose India. So we went and I loved and I was struck again by this amazing multilingual environment. The sound of Hindi or Urdu, I was just really captured and fascinated by um, a social environment where, again, outside of a monolingual setup, where language was fluid, rich, um, very much in contrast, at least I felt with my, <laughs> my very monolingual um, upbringing. And I didn't understand what I was seeing around me. And I could tell that I was missing so much and I wanted to understand. And that single trip also had a very large impact on the trajectory of my life. I started college studying Hindi at Indiana University. Um, and I went on to uh, go to India to study Hindi further. I started studying Persian as a master's student. Then I began to study Urdu as well um, during my master's program. 
And then I continued to travel back to India and eventually to Pakistan as well and developed very strong friendships. So I know that this was a very long-winded um, explanation, but I, I'm afraid your question sparked a lot of introspection on my part. Um, and there are so many important mentors in my life as well who gave me such wonderful and generous guidance that just have made um, this feel like a very organic process um, and, and one that's very, you know, uh, important to who I am. Um, but I think that ultimately language is where it began for me and where it continues to be centered. Terrific. Uh, well, as a way to begin to talk about the book, Megan, I was thinking that um, as a way to introduce the book to our readers, um, uh, maybe it might be useful for me to have you reflect on a, a couple of key terms that come up throughout uh, the book, and it might be a useful way to gain some entry into what you try to do in the book. Um, I think it might be useful for uh, maybe sort of non-South Asianists who might be listening to this podcast, if you could speak a bit about this category of the kasba, which is very central to uh, to your concerns here. And uh, um, and then this this idea of the timescape, uh, right? Uh, uh, this this uh, the, the way in which you bring together time and and, and space, and of course, later on also, how space becomes a place in terms of belonging, etc. So, so, so if I could have you talk about those two categories, uh, and then perhaps we can begin to think about the Medina newspaper, which is central to your concerns, but perhaps as a way to introduce the larger theme of the book, uh, maybe I could have you introduce those two categories for our Wonderful. listeners, and then we can go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely. That sounds good. Um, so, and, and uh, it's a good question because, of course, Qasba, I am faintly aware, means very different things in different uh, parts of the world. So I think <clears throat> what so the, the term Qasba, um, I argue in my book, um, although it can be associated with very specific demographic ratios and even statistics, I am I am more interested in the kind of sense or ineffable feeling or quality of the qasbah. But I think a productive way to start to introduce someone to the significance of the term in South Asia is to start with thinking a little bit about uh, the scholarship that has tried to define the term in in a more uh, demographic or statistical way. So it's the Qasbah is a small Islamicate, Islamicate small town is uh, a very typical gloss that you'll encounter in a lot of uh, historiography of South Asia. Um, a Qasbah could, would be a settlement with a population that was more than several thousand in size. So any smaller would be more likely to be described as a gang or a village. And, um, Aside from, but at the same time, it would be smaller in population size than a city. And it also had a bureaucratic and market significance. So it would be a place where local agricultural contexts would host market days, for instance, it would be a nexus of that kind of agricultural exchange and would also have a bureaucratic legacy. So in the case of Bijanur, for instance, um, Bijanur was an administrative center whose importance dated from the Mughal period, certainly, and perhaps even earlier. And um, as is well known among historians of South Asia, the, the British colonial government um, basically seconded these administrative centers that were important to Mughal bureaucracy and turned them into um, local bureaucratic centers um, in the service of colonial, um, in, the, in the service of the colonial regime. So 
And uh, so in summary, an Islamic small town with a very significant um, minority, if not majority, of a Muslim population with a strong history of bureaucratic and market significance. And then to, to shift gears to think a little bit about what the ineffable quality of a qasba is in South Asia, it has it, it retains an evocative and even kind of romantic appeal as a spiritual heartland and an ancestral home that's significant for many contemporary Indians and Pakistanis. Um, and some scholars, for instance, Bashir al-Hassan has emphasized the qasba as a home of a, an idealized past, uh, a pluralistic past, one where Hindus and Muslims were capable of coexisting in a way that often in the contemporary context seems um, difficult or if not impossible. And then more recently, scholars like Rasul Rahman have talked about how um, a more localized approach might be useful. And on the on the one hand, there are certain similarities that different qasbas show to each other. They're 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 dealing with um, a diverse population, uh, a larger than usual proportion of um, Muslims, considering that uh, the Muslim population in South Asia overall is around um, at that point um, still certainly a minority. And um, so, so sorry, Rahman has talked about how we should localize the study of the Qasbah and think a little bit more in terms of um, uh, pluralism, um, moving away from conversations about, about, about syncretism. So this is, this is a very short kind of literature review of the ways that Qasbah has entered into conversations about, um, about, uh, about cultural and religious identity. Um, in my book, I'm not so concerned about defining, um, you know, the specific population numbers of what constitutes a qasba, but I'm interested in how Medina newspaper, since it was being published from a qasba, um, how that newspaper and its impact really can't be fully understood until we consider the conditions in which it was created. And so another key characteristic of the Qasba as an urban environment was regular migrations from the Qasba to larger um, urban centers like Delhi or Lucknow or Lahore and then back. And so there's this constant kind of um, traveling between Qasbas and between Qasbas and large cities that results in flows of information that are very much embodied in kinship networks and, um, and networks between friends. So I hope that that does, I hope that that's a useful kind of very short um, introduction to thinking about the Qasbah in the South Asian context. In terms of space-time, timescape, I think that what, um, I think that the, the term timescape and my arrival at um, this term as something that can help us think a little bit about the public sphere in South Asia came um, through consideration of, of a problem that I observed in conversations about the public sphere in the South Asian context. I mean, I talk in the introduction about how, you know, Scott and Ingram, for instance, have have observed that the public is a category of interpretation, right, rather than something that we just kind of look at and um, 
kind of can study as something separate from the world around it. Um, and I think that, um, of course, Benedict Anderson's um, work on the public sphere has an outsized impact on how the public has been perceived in the South Asian context as well. I think um, even though ultimately I think it's a result of um, a slight misreading of Benedict Anderson to say that his approach to the public necessitates it being separate from religiosity. Ultimately, I think a lot of studies of the public sphere are interested in defining it as something separate from religion or a religious context. And this can also, Benedict Anders, translating Benedict Anderson's concept of an um, imagined community can, can sometimes translate into a kind of divorce from the local environment, a, a kind of abstractness to a public that I don't think um, helps us understand the type of public that the Urdu newspapers that I was studying um, for this book actually uh, were successful in sustaining. And so with these kind of problems and characteristics of the conversation about the public in mind, what um, was useful and what is useful about the term timescape for me, and this is a term that Laura Baer um, uh, coined for thinking about uh, you know, non-human time, social time, individual time. And this book is definitely interested in social time, how a kind of imagined community of time might be um, created through the, ex the regular exchange of material texts. And um, ultimately, I think what it does well is it reminds, it reminds us that when we're thinking about, you know, a public in the sense of an imagined community, we can't define um, modes of representation and modes of communication without simultaneously considering where, at least metaphorically, those forms of connection are grounded in terms of space on the one hand. So the fuzba, right, is um, certainly not just coincidentally the location where the newspaper was published. Um, it it, the significance of the Qasba as a place apart, as comes out in the book, is kind of intertwined with the newspaper's sense of itself and how it's speaking to its target audience. But one thing that also comes out in, in the book that links to the term timescape is the sense that instead of a, 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 a instead of a conception of linear time where we're looking at um when we're looking at, you know, the, the, the Mughal period, for instance, followed by the colonial period, and then both of those periods were preceded by a period of kind of Hindu rule, right? This is a very, very tired, very completely outdated sense of, um, you know, a march of time in South Asian historiography. In contrast to that, in the newspaper, which was very much shaping in a very material way the way that people discussed and interacted with ideas on a daily basis, time here you know, Mughal examples were being drawn into contemporary conversation alongside um, bullet points about the telegrams of the day. It, it, it helps us on looking at these newspapers and even seeing them visually, how these pieces are set side by side, gives us a real 
um, concrete, a very granular sense of the ways that um, not only was Medina newspaper an, um, a, a space apart for its readers, but it was also interested in reproducing this interlinking of the past and present as a way to create um, a path towards a future for Muslims. Terrific. Um, so I think this, uh, thanks so much, Megan. I think this gives us a very good platform to now launch into uh, the central um, uh, sort of uh, object of the study, which of course is really fascinating, influential and important uh, newspaper, the Medina newspaper. So um, maybe what would be really useful, and this a lot of this you do also in the beginning uh, part of the book, is maybe you could just give, uh, again, the listener some kind of a sense of... Uh, this newspaper, its beginnings, its founder, uh, its kind of readership. And of course, the key point of this book, of course, is how this newspaper uh, curates a certain kind of a Muslim public, and uh, which is connected to the Urdu language. Uh, but but uh, perhaps I could have you introduce the Medina newspaper for our listeners a bit, uh, its beginnings, its uh, uh, yes, yes. And, and its purposes. Absolutely. Um <clears throat> so the, the proprietor of Medina newspaper, Muhammad Majid Hassan, eventually through the strength of the popularity of his newspaper, um, earned the title Mulana um, Majid Hassan. And that's how I will refer to him for the rest of our conversation. Um, Mulana Majid Hassan came from a family of journalists and had been trained in Lahore a center for journalistic uh, endeavors in the late 19th and early 20th century. And he returned to Bijnor in the late 1900s, so between 1905 and 1909, to help his relatives um, run another newspaper um, that was um, owned by the family at the time. And in 1912, he made the decision to, um, with his wife's permission, to sell her jewelry for the money to found uh, a newspaper named Medina. And he later reveals um, in an anniversary issue of Medina, long after the newspaper had become extremely successful, that he had in fact had a dream um, that the uh, the the family newspaper um, he was helping to run, which was named Sahifa, um, he uh, he had a dream that he felt was should be interpreted to mean that he was about to found a newspaper in 1912 that would eclipse um, the original family newspaper to gain a greater hold and a greater influence. And and the dream was um, he dreamed of a of a moon, and um, he dreamt that a larger moon <laughs> appeared and eclipsed the first moon and that this should be interpreted as Medina being a particularly auspicious endeavor for the family to invest both money and time in. And it certainly was a, um, a dream that successfully predicted the dramatic success of Medina. So initially, um, the newspaper published from Bijnor Qasba um, only published a few hundred issues at a time. But by the end of the Khilafat movement, um, certainly by the early 1920s, we see um, the newspaper being 
one of the most widely distributed newspapers in the subcontinent, which is particularly remarkable considering its very small initial print run and the dramatic risks um, that were posed to publishers and journalists of that time period. Um, you know, there were many newspapers that simply did not survive um, the 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 um, demands of colonial censors to deposit massive securities, for instance. And Medina was actually, as a signal both of its um, popularity, um, as well as the risks that the colonial government thought that it posed to um, uh, to its authority. It was after publishing it, it, it published a an opinion editorial that was particularly vitriolic um, after the Jallianwalabagh massacre that resulted in the newspaper being completely excluded from distribution in the Punjab in 1919. And Medina, it, it's a great story because Medina in response to being completely excluded from the Punjab, actually renamed itself Yasrab, you know, in a, um, in clearly a cheeky, um, you know, a cheeky call out to, to the name Medina and proceeded to circulate itself, um, in the Punjab anyway. And ultimately they were, they were clearly caught because they changed the name back to Medina within only a few weeks. Um, but I like to tell that story because it's a good example of the ways that Medina was extremely creative, extremely bold, and honestly, um, flirting with the dangers of not just fines, um, but exclusion and even imprisonment um, for its editors during um, the years of the Khilafat movement, particularly. Um, and I think that um, over the course of the book, I talk about how the newspaper transformed in its um, attitudes to Muslim politics. Um, in the 1910s, they were very much reporting and uh, on both um, the actions of the League as well as um, the Congress. Um, and they, um, but as, you know, the decades wound on, it became clearer, um, especially by the mid to late 1930s, that um, Medina newspaper was um, opposed to um, the foundation of Pakistan and had become very much um, aligned with Congress. And it was also very much indirectly aligned with the school of Deoband that was pro-Congress as well. And we can see this through the editorials that are reprinting Deobandi scholars, um, through um, the records of, you know, biographies of uh, Madani, for instance, where we see Madani, uh, you know, the prominent scholar having an impact on how um, editorials were being printed indirectly in Medina. And so it's really it's fascinating because um, not only was, Mo, uh, you know, Molana Majid Hassan able to leverage the success and profit of the newspaper into a successful local Congress career, but it was also it's showing how, you know, the newspaper didn't only report the news, but became, you know, certainly influential in in local politics. Um, not only that, but we can see through, you know, the course of the paper, how. Um, 
how a publication in Urdu could see the language of Urdu as being certainly as being Muslim without necessarily being pro-Muslim League. Um, in fact, it it clearly was pro-Congress um, by the late 1920s and early 1930s. And it certainly continued to be published after independence as well. Um, but the the family, um, the descendants of um, the um, Mulana Majid Hassan, as they will tell you, it was never really the same after um, independence, as many Urdu publications were not the same. Many um, either migrated to Pakistan or were left without the kind of automatic public audience um, that they had become accustomed to. And of course, as we as we know, within two years of independence, Urdu was demoted from its position as official language in um, Uttar Pradesh. And so also, you know, very quickly, the, the, the place and the importance given to Urdu in what had been a heartland of Urdu print publics uh, came under threat, which also influenced the path of Urdu journalism as well. Um, so, so I hope that that's that's a that's a general introduction to Medina yes. and its significance. Um, is that sufficient <laughs> before we Absolutely. go forward? Yeah. Um, thank you, Megan. Um, as the next question, I want to get to one of the major themes of this book that you really convincingly show, and uh, there are multiple examples. Uh, so I'll just keep the question broad, and then you can take it in the direction that you want to, which is this relationship that you show throughout the book between uh, um, the newspaper and its presentation of the Kasbah as a certain kind of a locality that is to be distinguished from the urban center uh, that articulates a certain uh, a modality of Islam and Muslim identity. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this this interaction between the Medina newspaper and its presentation of the Kasbah uh, as a certain kind of vanguard of Muslim identity in uh, South Asia at this particular moment, how did that that kind of cross pollination between the newspaper and and the the uh, the, the identity that the Kasbah uh, inhabited? Mm. How did that work? That relationship, because I saw that very central to your concerns throughout the book. So if, I think our listeners will really mm. appreciate listening to you about that theme. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. <clears throat> so this book is. A micro study. And so I am very focused on how Medina saw itself as building its authority as an Urdu publication. And so I'm not trying to argue, I'm certainly not arguing in the book that Urdu has some sort of essential connection to Islam. Um, and I, I should point out that a great deal of scholarship has, um, has discussed. So, for instance, Jennifer Dubrow's book on um, cosmopolitan dreams has talked about very different Urdu publications that emphasize even explicitly secularism and a kind of separation from uh, religious topics as something that was very important for that public that it was um, cultivating. And uh, Kavita Datla as well has talked about, um, you know, secular Islam and uh, Urdu print um, very convincingly. But in this case, um, with Medina newspaper and with the newspapers that it was in close conversation with, um, we see here a very, a very different story about the relationship between 
Urdu and Islam, where the link was very much cultivated and um, defended in the same breath as the Urdu newspapers um, that were part of the network were being defended against censorship and surveillance of um, the colonial government. So you asked about how the relationship between the newspaper and the presentation of the Qasba as an urban center emerged and <clears throat> how I how it, it emerged in this book was very clearly through the trajectory of Medina's appeal to, to um, readers of Urdu. I talk in the book about how um, there is something very particular about Bijnor as a Qasba that created this sense of being both connected and at the same time very distant from the centers of power. On the one hand, um, Despite its small population size, we can see that um, lithographic printing methods have definitely penetrated into these small areas of the countryside, including Bijnor. We also know that a telegraph line um, has been um, expanded uh, quite early on to Bijnor, which facilitates the rapid exchange of information that makes the publication of a newspaper like Medina possible, because one of the calling cards of these weekly newspapers was the reliable transference of um, reliable new information. You know, Thaza Bataza Nubanu is um, the a title of the telegram session, you know, the, the up to the date of the very latest. And, um, so on the one hand, we have this rapid transfer of information via the telegram. And we also know that, you know, telegraph technology was promoted by the colonial government because they wanted to be able to keep tabs on what kind of what kinds of information was being transferred um, quickly. But on the other hand, uh, it, very important technologies like the railways only um, arrived in Bijnor very late, relatively. So, so several years of the early years of um, Medina include um, include editorials that are petitioning for the colonial government to expand um, the railway line to include Bijnor, decrying the negative impact um, of refusing to extend a railway line into um, Bijnor itself. And so what I observe is this tension between extreme connectivity on the one hand and, and um, extreme disconnectedness on the other hand creates this tension that I see resonating with um, Medina's sense of itself as a place apart over time. So eventually in um in a very fiery editorial that I that I talk about in the book, there is an embrace of this sense of separateness, saying um in which um the, the editorial talks about how thank goodness, you know, the Qasba is separate from these um corrupted urban centers and corruption often, um, you know, was a reference to over, over, over undue Western influence, um, a shift away from, um, Muslim behaviors that were virtuous and proper. And there was a, um, so out of this kind of cauldron 
mixing connectedness and disconnectedness. In Medina, the newspaper came to embrace the disconnectedness um, that was manifested in its separation from the railway network to transmit a message of authenticity um, far beyond the Qasba context. And I think this is part of what made the message of the tone of Medina so attractive um, to so many people. And I think that this helps explain um, its ability to really draw draw in so many readers, um, despite its relatively humble beginnings. Now, before we, I'm going to skip a chapter here and come back to your chapter on materiality in a moment. I think just to continue with this theme, uh, perhaps for our listeners, uh, uh, you know, the chapter in which you talk about the shifting relationship between uh, the Medina newspaper and those the editors uh, and those running it and the British government is really fascinating. And you show ways in which that relationship kept on shifting and changing and how they tried to balance their Muslim identity and their sort of solidarity with uh, symbols of Muslim identity like the Ottoman uh, Caliphate uh, and, of course, their, their role as uh, citizens of the British state. Talk a bit about how this relationship between the Madhya newspaper and how they perceive the colonial state shifted over time, especially in the tumultuous years of uh, World War One and its end, and then the Khilafat movement, etc. Um, uh, uh, I think that's maybe really uh, a really interesting case study uh, for uh, many audiences that I think will really uh, be fascinated to hear a bit about this shifting relationship that you chart uh, so beautifully mm. in, in Chapter 4, I believe. Yes, yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so this chapter I actually wrote um, fairly early on in my research because I started looking at the newspaper chronologically. And I think that um, the, con- the concept for this chapter grew out of readings that I had done that had established right this pattern uh, in the early years of World War One, to kind of publishing many newspapers and institutions, um, publishing pronouncements of loyalty and um, fealty to the British government. And um, a great deal of scholarship has contrasted these early years of World War One to, um, you know, the outpourings of... Um, Kind of challenging, increasingly challenging colonial authority um, in the, the Ottoman context uh, after uh, the end of World War One, and I think that in many ways Medina follows this very familiar trajectory in the sense that initially you have um, very clear statements of support for um, Britain and its allies. Um, but gradually, over time, these um, it, it it becomes clear in in a close reading of many articles in Medina that the strength of Islam and the strength of Muslim culture and often the Ottoman you know the Ottoman context is used as a cipher for um, this contrast between 
what is Muslim and what is, you know, European or Western. Over time, it's um, it becomes apparent that even if there are very explicit statements of loyalty or even admiration, that the, these articles that are talking about that are mapping Europe are doing so in contrast to what is seen as very um, a positive kind of view of Islam as um, something that is definitely represented by the history of the Ottoman Empire, but on the other hand is also um, something that is capable of solving or solving social problems that the European or Western context is not capable of. So um, on the one hand, like I, I'm thinking about in this chapter, when I'm talking about the, um, the Muslim deputation to the Viceroy of Delhi in 1914. So it's really interested in trying to petition the Viceroy in 1914 to um, basically ask the Raj, ask the British Raj to comply with the demands of the Muslim Qom. But it's doing so through what it explicitly identifies as, you know, quote-unquote Western logic. And so on, on the one hand in Medina, you see this, this commitment to a polyphony, right? It's aware that the newspaper is being read not only by um, not only by uh, those who are, you know, native Urdu speakers, but also being read by, um, you know, colonial servants who are surveilling um, the newspaper. Um, but they're also interested in helping readers understand how to kind of speak to power in compelling ways. And so uh, the, the one thing I find really interesting and useful about Medina as a voice is its polyphonic nature. The fact that simultaneously, even a single article like the one that's that's covering the Muslim deputation to the Viceroy in Delhi in 1914, it's simultaneously showing about three or four different things, right? On the one hand, it's arguing that the Raj should <clears throat> comply with the demands of the Muslim Qom. On the other hand, it is arguing that this, you know, its its goals in that article that it's promoting comply not only with the terms of Islamic logic, Islamic culture, but are simultaneously satisfying the demands of Western logic. And so we can see there this um, this attempt to show in Medina consistently that. Ultimately, to make an argument successfully in Islamic terms will more than satisfy the demands of Western logic and, in fact, will ultimately demonstrate the superiority of Islamic modes of debate, conversation and politics. Yeah, I mean, I also found really fascinating in this chapter the way you show the subtle shifts in their in their understanding of um, the 
relationship between the categories of religion and politics and how that got implicated in the Khilafat movement uh, uh, at first, you know, trying to play that balancing act, but then eventually becoming quite critical of the colonial state. Uh, so so that, that was a fascinating discussion. To just complete this thread, uh, perhaps, Megan, um, uh, uh, I, there are many other examples that you bring to, uh, in the final chapter of the book in terms of how the Medina newspaper then consolidated its position as, you know, uh, an important representative of the Muslims of uh, Bijnor um, in multiple local political issues. But maybe I could, uh, since our time is limited, maybe I could have you focus a bit on the last example that you brought up in that chapter, the by-elections of 1937. Tell us to our tell us our tell our listeners a bit what were the by-elections of 1937 and how do how does Medina's response to that further punctuate this argument that you're making and you make throughout the book that you cannot divide up Muslim solidarity and loyalties along any predictable lines and uh, there is some complexity involved in how these patterns of solidarity unfold in terms of uh, political practice. So maybe with that Mm. example... Yes, I'm so glad you asked about the by-election of 1937 because I find this this is a part, this is an aspect of the book that wasn't in my um, dissertation originally. Um, This is something that I added um, over time. So um, the by-election of 1937 uh, basically brought a spotlight onto the Qasba of Bijnor in national elections. So if you look in the Times of India archives, for instance, the English language newspaper, the, the only mention of Bijnor almost that you find is um, in the 1930s, right, is during 1937 when all attention was riveted to um, Bijnor to see what would happen. And many people saw the by-election as a referendum on how um, league versus Congress policies would play out on the local stage. So a man named Hafiz Ibrahim switched party affiliations from the Muslim League to Congress after being elected and was forced to run for re-election as a result because he had defected from the League. And it's in this by-election that we see... Um, that we see Medina kind of using its voice and bringing it to bear really effectively to um, effectively to correctly predict that Hafiz Ibrahim would win um, the re-election despite switching parties and to demonstrate um, that kind of local political dynamics ultimately would in this case um, win out over these uh, you know national um, political narratives. So the late 1930s saw a series of these small local elections that basically were seen as ciphers for how, um, you know, localities would decide loyalty to the Muslim League or to Congress. And so uh, the League rationale clearly was that because Ibrahim had been, you know, elected as a Muslim League representative and had switched parties, it was absolutely necessary that he run for re-election to affirm that his um, that he still had public support while being affiliated to a different party. Um, uh, so Hafiz Ibrahim delayed um, basically petitioning or filing for re-election. And in the meantime, many parties and individuals converged on Bijnor, uh, the district, as well as Bijnor Qasba, to... Um, to draw attention to the issue and to petition for one approach or the other. 
Um, he was heavily, Hafiz Ibrahim was heavily criticized for his delay in announcing his reelection under the auspices of Congress. Um, and in the meantime, Medina kind of waded into the fray. It's already a national, it's a paper with national import. Um, and it really comes into its own here, um, publishing articles that include statements by Ibrahim himself and directly call out, um, you know, uh, Jannah himself, um, criticizing what um, Medina and its editorial team saw as a very personal, like Zati approach to Islam. Um, <clears throat> and they underline this quite clearly in, so if you look, uh, I include some of the, tra a transcription of some of the original Urdu here, and they do this in subtle ways as well as direct ways. You know, they always call Jannah Mr. Jannah, right? And <clears throat> as a way of kind of subtly emphasizing to Urdu readers his lack of any, um, you know, affiliation or um, sense of authority beyond this English word, mister. And they also criticize in their coverage leading up to this by-election um, what they saw as Mr. Jinnah's sense of entitlement to safeguard the rights of Muslims. Um, and so they, they ultimately use this opportunity to have this really fascinating conversation about who owns Islam, basically. And Medina is advocating for an extremely local approach that takes into account the services, um, you know, khidmat, khidmat, um, in, uh, in evaluating above all else, above any national affiliation, what types of what type of success um, a local politician um, should have, and so the the the, the results of the by election. So in this case, Hafiz Ibrahim was successful. Um, the 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 person who was chosen by the the Muslim League to stand election had very had a very poor record of local service um, in the locality, and so he never really stood a chance against Ibrahim. Some of the other by elections that were also used as referenda on on the league um, that were. Uh, you know, the, the league was successful in, in some of these other by-elections that happened um, in the year following um, Bijnor's by-election. But what I find fascinating and exciting about this is it's kind of the, the pinnacle or the natural conclusion of this, um, of this identity, this persona that Medina has been cultivating since the early 1910s as a, a voice for Muslims in general, but focusing very explicitly on the local as a source and fountainhead of authority and credibility. And I think that it was this mix of local credibility, its emphasis on the, 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 the networks that underlay the influential nature of these newspaper conversations that allowed Medina to not just correctly predict the results of the by-election, but quite possibly to influence their outcome in a strong way. 
So shifting gears a bit, I uh, now want to move to one of the earlier chapters, but um, a really interesting and important chapter in the book, which talks a bit about the materiality of the newspaper itself or the technology of its production. And that also connects with your larger argument about ways in which uh, A, the Medina newspaper presents itself as in a particular kind of Islamic idiom, and uh, perhaps even more importantly, how it connects the present uh, with the past, which is a central theme of the whole book, the question of time and how, how time works uh, from past uh, to present. So um, I know it's a very rich chapter, but perhaps if you could introduce for our listeners a bit the, the te- technology of uh, lithography and uh, why, why the materiality of the newspaper, let me phrase the question this way, why is the materiality of the newspaper so central to your larger argument and concerns in this book? Uh, perhaps that would mm. be one way to address this theme. Great, great. Thank you. This is a really exciting question. Uh, And this chapter was also something that emerged over time. It it wasn't initially included in uh, the version of this book that was my dissertation, for instance. Um, Like many of the realizations I made in the process of writing this book, this chapter was born out of um, a a question that I had. Because on the one hand, it has been well established in the 19th century by eminent scholars such as Sima Alwi that Arabic grew as a language of power and importance for Muslims in South Asia from the 19th century onwards. On the other hand, what I was seeing in these newspapers, not necessarily always in the the language itself, was the influence of much older networks of correspondence. And so part of what I argue in this book is that, and this is in keeping with my critique of Benedict Anderson's concept of the public as emerging with the um, arrival of the printing press to South Asia, I'm arguing alongside scholars such as Margaret Pernell, who have observed that we should really think about this as a longer trajectory of the public. So the newspapers that are emerging in Urdu are not emerging because of the arrival of the printing press. They're emerging as overlays of vibrant correspondence networks um, that existed prior to the arrival of lithography in South Asia in the early 19th century. And so I talk a little bit about Akhbarat earlier in the book, these Persian newsletters that were shifted, that were um, that were sent both from Delhi to important satellites um, like Bijnor and from satellites like Bijnor into Delhi to um, provide a systematic way of transferring information um, around, well, uh, you know, at that time, the Mughal Empire. And in many ways, I argue that the, the newspaper, the Urdu newspaper, fulfilled this type of function of knowledge transferal that handwritten akhbarat or newsletters had fulfilled in um, an earlier period. Part of this is, we, we can see this in a few different ways. One, that um, the... I mean, the colonial government kind of explicitly identifies newspapers as the best source of knowledge that used to be gained from Akhbarat. And also, you know, in in language and presentation, the newspapers are titling themselves as Akhbar. Um, They are 
in in the way that they're presenting the knowledge that's on their pages. They're they're mimicking the same types of categories of knowledge that would appear on the akhbarat um, in the akhbarat or Persian newsletters as well. Now, coming back to my point where I was talking about, um, you know, the rise of Arabic and what this has to do with um, materiality. When I began to um, look from the first moment that I saw the newspapers, I was struck by um, their distinctiveness. Um, Lithography allows one to um, reproduce the handwritten word of nostalgic. So um, lithography is a form of printing that uses, used in the 19th century, a limestone slab um, to reproduce um, very effectively uh, images or, um, or, or handwriting on, on the written page. So in the, in the West or in Europe, um, lithography was hardly ever used to reproduce the written word. This was partly um, because by the time lithography emerged, there had already been a very big divergence between forms of handwritten um, script and typeset script um, because typeset technology had been around since, you know, the late 15th century in the European context. By, you know, 1796, when Alois Senefelder creates um, or discovers this lithographic technology, um, there was no longer this desire expectation that, you know, cursive handwriting, for instance, should be reproduced using metal typeset technology. However, in the early 19th century South Asian context, lithography was extremely appealing as a way of not replacing the scribal networks that depended upon handwritten calligraphy, but building upon the strength of those. So we see, you know, in the late 19th century, for instance, um, Dar Ulum Deoband has a printing department that emphasizes training in lithography. Um, clearly, in the case of, you know, Awad Akhbar and Awad Punch that Jennifer Dubrow has written about, we can see. Um, that uh, Nawal Kishore Press and just Lucknow in general was known as a center for high quality lithographic um, productions. And through, so in, in the newspaper's ability to reproduce the written script of Nastalik, it was emphasizing a visual connection to the past, even if, you know, an individual piece might not be, you know, a work of art in and of itself in a, in, in a formal sense. Um, also in the images that were being produced using lithography, we see quite literally the, you know, images of the holy city of Medina being reproduced on the page, creating in um, in reinforcing this sense of the newspaper as a space apart for the Muslims who are going to be reading it and um, and digesting it, and I think that what's so the more that I found out about lithography and how um, and how the importance of calligraphy was tied so closely to Medina's sense of authenticity, the more I realized that quite apart from, 
you know, the content, the discursive content of any particular editorial or news story, the form, the aesthetics of the newspaper itself was transferring certain types of information, was creating a sense of a community that certainly was consistent across forms of, you know, issues of Medina itself, but also I'm hoping future research will show was being echoed across this network of publications. Mm -hmm. um, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, uh, Megan, uh, maybe I'll just end with a comment rather than a question and then maybe you could, if you want, you could comment on that comment a bit. I think it was really uh, uh, poignant towards the end of your book when you talked about sort of the afterlife of this newspaper and how the partition basically was a, a kind of a, a death knell uh, to this newspaper as Urdu um, sort of lessened in prominence in India and, and so on. But you talk about ways in which uh, you actually met people even today who used to read uh, Medina in their youth. And I think that's one of the really um, uh, lyrical aspects of this book also. You really sketch a certain kind of a reading public and you see that you can almost palpably feel a newspaper becoming an important part of the daily choreography of life and over tea and how the news of the of the moment is being discussed and debated and religious questions are being debated and discussed. At one point in the book, you talk about this really fascinating debate that unfolded between uh, uh, Karnlavi and Madani, uh, uh, etc. So, so, um, so I, 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 I guess uh, it, it, in some ways, you, you, this book is capturing a certain kind of a moment uh, which is no longer there, a certain kind of a, a moment in which nationalism and the, the, the politics of the post-partition, post-colonial nation-states has not quite taken a hold on the, on the uh, sort of consciousness and imaginaries of, of these people. Uh, so, so I was wondering if you comment a bit on this kind of a, uh, uh, the the ways in which this book is capturing a, a sort of um, a, a a moment which is no longer there, but still the afterlife of it can be can be felt, right? So, in in some ways, that past still harkens back to us in our present every now and then. So, it's not totally lost, but it's no longer there with the kind of prominence it once was. So I'm not sure if I'm making sense or not. I just finished this book. No, no, so. no, no. You are, you are. I, I thank you for these uh, reflections. I think, uh, I think this is a good time to think a little bit about, to reflect a little bit on how I became interested in this topic uh, originally. I mean, I, I grew up with a very strong interest in journalism and newspapers. I, um, and and I came from a part of the U.S. that's considered quite backwards, right, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I think that when I was growing up, I remember making the shift from reading the local newspaper, the Commercial Appeal, which now no longer is, is quite the same, to reading the New York Times. And the idea was reading the New York Times would take us places, would allow us to be interpolated into this you know, broader cosmopolitan um, conversation. And ultimately, you know, the local newspaper um, in my hometown ended up dying out or it becoming a very kind of hollowed out subsidiary of USA Today um, in, uh, in, the, in the middle of me writing this book. And I remember just always having a fascination with papers as very material objects that could take us places or take us outside of our immediate localities. But then on the other hand, I kind of contrast 
those thoughts and like reflecting on that interest in journalism with some of my early conversations about Urdu newspapers in Lucknow. So I have this really vivid memory of see- sitting on the patio of Seema Alvi's father's house. So uh, Seema Alvi's parents live just next door to very dear friends of mine where I lived when I was in Lucknow. And he was telling me about his fond memories of growing up reading Medina and other newspapers with this very kind of far off look in his eye with the, the the recent you know copies of his daily newspapers folded next to him and i felt this really um one of my favorite parts of this project that i wasn't always able to tie or 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 you know weave successfully into the archival work were all of the conversations i had with older men about their beautiful memories of living their lives connected to these papers that no longer circulated and on the one hand i felt this real i felt this real connection to these men as someone for whom reading newspapers was a way of experiencing the world in a really visceral way growing up. And it's also a way that I learned Urdu as well by talking to people about their experiences reading paper and how that common experience of reading brought them into tune with, with a wider world. Um, and so the, now I think it's relevant that kind of thinking about how my local newspaper basically died while writing this process, you know, um, while writing this book. And I'm talking to, you know, a group of men who dearly loved this newspaper conversation, which is no longer in existence. And I think, um, I think that, that, that part of what motivated me to, to look at this or, or write this kind of work is to is a way of observing how you know calls to or attention to pay attention to the local environment you know certainly aren't gone completely and i i do see i do see the qasba having a power in in the south asian context in india at least even if the power is a diffuse one even if the power is a kind of sentimental one i think that there is this real sense of almost a latent questioning of some of these broad national narratives that's allowed to that's fostered in conversations about the ancestral qasba um that maybe they only exist in kind of informal in an informal sense or or in those kinship networks um but but ultimately i think the foundations upon which these you know qasba newspaper networks were built certainly haven't faded away entirely i think it's yet to be determined what their precise impact or shape is um in the present day Perfect. So as we're coming to the end of our time, Megan, perhaps you could share a bit with our listeners what you are uh, imagining is your next uh, project. Oh, yes. Well, I'm, I'm working on a couple of things at the same time. <laughs> um, one of my projects is directly building off of this work. Uh, I'm thinking about emotions and calligraphy 
in the South Asian context in the 20th century. So I'm very interested um, in my next project in thinking about how in both the late colonial and post-colonial period, how um, writers of handbooks on calligraphy were defending the art of calligraphy and defining it not only as a science, but as something that cultivated certain ways of um, emotional and social being. So that's the, that's the project that connects and is a direct outgrowth from this book. Terrific. Um... Did you want to talk about the second project, or did I lose you? Or you yes, I would love to. <laughs> want to make sure, sure, sure. I didn't. I didn't know if you were out of time, Charlie. No, 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 so, in well, the second, pro the other project is um, a. It, it's it's about a, a late eighteenth century um, Bihari Mughal woman who um, married an East India Company official and moved with him in 1784 to Devonshire, England, where she became, um, she became imbricated and interpolated in some ways into a British Christian life. She con converted to Christianity. She changed her name. Her children became, you know, local magistrates and local, you know, elite Britons. And I'm interested in um, this very rich um, family archive that I've had the good fortune to run across, um, how it reveals her processes of becoming um, from Sharafanissa, the name that she um, you know, used when she was speaking and writing in Persian, to Elizabeth, the woman that she um, became or you know, was in the process of becoming um, when she died and was buried in Gloucestershire, England. Print and the Urdu Public, Muslims, Newspapers, and Urban Life in Colonial India by Professor Megan eaton Robb, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thank you uh, so much, Megan, for this uh, really wonderful book that I'm sure will speak to multiple audiences uh, and a uh, really eminently teachable book as well. And thank you for talking about uh, this book in such an uh, articulate uh, fashion with our uh, uh, the new, with the New Books Network. And I'm sure our listeners really benefited from this conversation as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.